What we have seen over the last couple days is a descent into constitutional madness. How are you enjoying it so far? That's what I thought. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for you on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow. Says me. From Bradblog.com, thank you very much for joining us today as our special coverage of the ongoing impeachment trial of President Donald John Trump continues after nearly 10 hours of questions, including more than 90 written questions from U.S. senators read by the Chief Justice of the United States and answered by the two teams of attorneys, the Democratic House managers on the prosecution side and the White House attorneys defending the president from two articles of impeachment against him. That all ended on Wednesday at uh, just after 11 p.m. Eastern Time. And day two of those questions are continuing as we go to air today. The final day scheduled for such questions and answers before the Senate will proceed to a vote on whether to allow witnesses in this trial or if for the first time in impeachment trial history including not just presidential impeachment trials, but any impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate, there would not be any witnesses allowed to be called to testify in the actual proceeding. Now, by way of comparison, the last Senate impeachment trial just a couple of years ago to remove a federal judge from the bench, uh, which Congressman Adam Schiff also led as the House manager at the time, that included some 27 witnesses. In the Senate trial, 14 of whom were new, did not appear in the House's initial impeachment inquiry before the articles of impeachment for uh, against Judge G. Thomas Porteous Jr. were sent to the trial, sent to the Senate for a trial where Porteous was found guilty and removed from office. That was then. This is now. 
And this is only the president of the United States. So why bother bringing in any witnesses at all? While the questions and answers in the Senate on Wednesday were fascinating and at times enlightening, I'm afraid things only got worse for the nation itself, perhaps in exponential ways as the President's attorneys moved the goalposts in their defense of Trump's pressure campaign against Ukraine to the point of disturbing absurdity as the questions progressed throughout the day and night. And I think really everyone who was watching it with an, an honest, open mind, and that does not include about half of the nation, I'm afraid, must have seen what went on on Wednesday and thought it was absurd the arguments that were being brought by the Republicans uh, suddenly. Well, yeah, they've pushed these arguments to the point of absurdity, and I'd say also they're damn dangerous. They are. That, of course, is uh, Desi Doyen, our producer. <laughs> Hi, Des. Hi. Most notably, what was uh, so damn dangerous was criminal defense attorney Alan Dershowitz, who is not a constitutional attorney. He is known for his TV appearances on Fox News and his defense work for illustrative clients like O.J. Simpson and Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, he is working on the White House counsel's defense team in the Senate trial. He argued amazingly, as we discussed briefly on our previous broadcast, he argued on Wednesday that the president, any president, or for that matter, any public official, I guess, has the right to do pretty much anything he wants to do to help his reelection chances, because so long as he or she believes his or her reelection is in the country's best interest, then anything he or she does along those lines is only an act of looking out for the for the good of the country. So that's just fine. Seriously, that is what Dershowitz argued. And there is no review by the Senate or by the House or by the courts. It seems to have captured the approval of quite a few Republican senators, some uh, pretty short-sighted Republican senators, I might add, if they're actually accepting this argument, which I will play for you in a bit, so you don't have to take my word for it. But it, it you know, may have swayed some of those who have been wavering on whether to allow a, uh, to, whether to vote to allow or to, or to block witnesses and documents in this trial. When that vote takes place, most likely now uh, as of uh, on Friday. But you don't have to take my word for this madness or Desi Doyen's word for this madness. Here's The Washington Post today. They write President Trump's legal team offered a startling defense Wednesday as senators debated his fate in the impeachment trial, arguing that presidents could do nearly anything so long as they believe their reelection is in the public interest. The assertion from Alan Dershowitz, one of the attorneys representing the president, seemed to take GOP senators by surprise. At the same time, Republican lawmakers were sounding increasingly confident about defeating a vote expected on Friday over calling new witnesses in the trial. Dershowitz's remarks came in response to a question from Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, about quid pro quos, one of the offenses that uh, Trump is alleged to have committed. Democrats impeached Trump last month on a charge of, abusing of abuse of power, alleging he withheld military aid and a White House visit from Ukraine until Kiev announced investigations into his political opponents. And also he was charged with uh, obstruction of Congress. Now, in response to this uproar about what Dershowitz said, Dershowitz has since tried to claim that he did not say what he is on videotape as having clearly said. 
claiming on Thursday that the media, quote, willfully distorted his shocking argument that presidents can do whatever they want to get reelected because said reelection is, quote, in the public interest, even though that is precisely the argument that he made. Dershowitz tweeted today, quote, taking advantage of the fact most of their viewers didn't actually hear the Senate Q&A, CNN, MSNBC, and some other media willfully distorted my answers. They characterized my argument as if I had said that if a president believes that his re-election was in the national interest, he can do anything. <laughs> I said nothing like that, Dershowitz tweeted in this long series of tweets, as anyone who actually heard what I said can attest. Well, I heard what he said, and you can too. Here is exactly what Dershowitz said in his answer to Ted Cruz's question on Wednesday. Every public official that I know believes that his election is in the public interest. And mostly you're right. Your election is in the public interest. And if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. We may argue that it's not in the national interest for a particular president to get reelected or for a particular senator or member of Congress. And maybe we're right. It's not in the national interest for everybody who's running to be elected. But for it to be impeachable, you would have to discern that he or she made a decision solely on the basis of, as the House managers put it, corrupt motives. And it cannot be a corrupt motive if you have a mixed motive that partially involves the national interest, partially involves electoral, and does not involve personal pecuniary interests. And the House managers do not allege that this decision, this quid pro quo, as they call it, and the question is based on the hypothesis there was a quid pro quo, I'm not acting the facts, they never allege that it was based on pure financial reasons. It would be a much harder case if a hypothetical president of the United States said to a hypothetical leader of a foreign country, unless you build a hotel with my name on it, and unless you give me a million dollar kickback, I will withhold the funds. That's an easy case. That's purely corrupt and in the purely private interest. But a complex middle case is I want to be elected. I think I'm a great president. I think I'm the greatest president there ever was. And if I'm not elected, the national interest will suffer greatly. That cannot be an impeachable offense. Thank you. So it, it cannot be a corrupt motive. But if it's a mixed motive, it's only partially corrupt. Then all of the corrupt okay. stuff doesn't count yes. because it's mixed. So you have to throw it all you out. You can't impeach him for that. So if he had asked for, for money or for a Trump Tower to be built, that would be out of line. But if it was just to ask for a thing of value to help him win re-election, that can't be impeachable because if he felt his own re-election was in the national interest, well, by God, he is just looking out for the nation when he asked a foreign power for a thing of value to help him win re-election. That thing of value in this case, a foreign power must announce that they are investigating his political rival in that re-election, a man who could be his opponent in 2020 for corruption. Despite any lack of evidence, by the way, to that end, but just because 
Uh, such an announcement would help his reelection chances, which is, of course, for the good of the country as the president saw it. This cannot be impeachable. Just wow. So is that what you heard uh, Dershowitz say? We just played it for you, despite him claiming, quote, that I said nothing like that, as anyone who actually heard what I said can attest. Is it just the liberal media at CNN and MSNBC and I guess here at the broadcast just distorting his answers? In his long Twitter thread uh, trying to unsay what it was that he did say, Dershowitz insisted that his argument was merely that a president was allowed to have a mixed motive. The lawyer claimed without presenting evidence that former presidents Barack Obama and Abraham Lincoln had, quote, mixed motives. When the former broke his promise that he would bomb Syria and then the latter sent troops to Indiana during the Civil War, he tweeted, uh, I did not say or imply that a candidate could do anything to reassure his reelection, only that seeking help in an election is not necessarily corrupt citing the Lincoln and Obama examples to try to dig him, uh, dig his way out of this mess. But it is exactly what he argued on Wednesday when he was defending Trump in front of 100 senators and the uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court who presides over this trial. In defense of what Donald Trump did, his pressure campaign on Ukraine. He said, your election is in the public interest, and if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. Dershowitz's argument on Wednesday extended a line of reasoning that he had advanced earlier in the week when he contended that even if proven, the charges against Trump would still not constitute an impeachable offense. Some Republican senators latched on to that argument, as the Post reports, especially in the wake of leaks from an unpublished book by Trump's former national security adviser, John Bolton, directly linking Trump to the conditioning of security assistance to Ukraine. Bolton wrote about a conversation in which Trump discussed delaying the aid until uh, until Ukraine announced publicly that uh, there would be investigations including into the former vice president, Joe Biden, and his son, Hunter. Multiple Democrats, including Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, skewered Dershowitz's argument to the point of mockery, well-deserved mockery, I should add. She said his argument was beyond absurd. I thought he made absolutely no sense. He is wrong. It, I think uh, he's made a laughable argument that undermines the president's case. But in fact, I think that the claim won't undermine the president's case. I believe it'll be embraced by Republican senators and used as part of their defense for acquitting him. Most likely as early as Friday of this week in time to make sure that they can all go home to watch the Super Bowl on Sunday and Trump can crow that he did nothing wrong as found by the Senate next Tuesday in his State of the Union address. House Minority Leader Chuck Schumer harshly criticized Dershowitz's uh, uh, statement, describing it this way. He said, by Dershowitz's logic, President Nixon did nothing wrong in Watergate. He was just breaking into the Democratic National Committee to help his reelection, which, of course, is in the public interest. The Dershowitz argument, frankly, he said, would unleash a monster more aptly. It would unleash a monarch, said Schumer. Lead House Manager Adam Schiff responded to the claim as well on Thursday when he was asked what, if any limit, there would be 
on what presidents could do if the senators accept the argument offered by the president of the United States lawyer that he can do anything he wants, including get help from a foreign power to cheat on his own reelection, so long as he believes his reelection is in the best interests of the nation. Adam Schiff described it as a descent into constitutional madness. There is no limiting principle to the argument that we heard last night from the president's team. That is, if there's a quid pro quo that the president believes will help him get reelected and he believes his reelection is in the national interest, then it doesn't matter how corrupt that quid pro quo is. It's astonishing that on the floor of this body someone would make that argument. Now, it didn't begin that way in the beginning of the president's defense, but what we have seen over the last couple days is a descent into constitutional madness, because that way madness lies. If we are to accept the premise that a president essentially can do whatever he wants, engage in whatever quid pro quo he wants, I will give you this if you will give me that to help me get elected. I will give you military dollars if you will give me help in my reelection. If you will give me illicit foreign interference in our election. Now, the only reason you make that argument is because you know your client is guilty and dead to rights. That is an argument made of desperation. Now, what's so striking to me is... Almost half a century ago, we had a president who said, well, when the president does it, that means it is not illegal. That, of course, was Richard Nixon. Watergate is now 40 to 50 years behind us. Have we learned nothing in the last half century? Have we learned nothing at all? It seems like we're back to where we were. The president says it. It's not illegal. Or Donald Trump's version, under Article 2, I can do whatever I want. Or Professor Dershowitz's point, if if the president believes it helps his reelection, it is therefore in the national interest. He can do whatever he wants. In fact, much as we thought that we progressed post-Watergate, and we enacted Watergate reforms, and we tried to insulate the Justice Department from interference by the presidency. We tried to put an end to the political abuses of that department. As much as we thought we enacted campaign finance reforms, we are right back to where we were a half century ago. And I would argue we may be in a worse place because this time, this time, that argument may succeed. That argument, if the president says it, it can't be illegal, failed. And Richard Nixon was forced to resign. But that argument may succeed here, now. That means we're not back to where we are. We are worse off than where we are. That is the normalization of lawlessness. I would hope that every American would recognize that it's wrong to seek foreign help in an American election, that Americans should decide American elections. I would hope, and I believe, that every American understands that, and every American understands that's true for Democratic presidents and Republican ones. But apparently it doesn't matter. None of that matters. 
Because if the president believes it's his interest, it's okay. Now, there was an argument also, well, what if it was a credible reason? Of course, there's no evidence that this was a credible reason to investigate the president's rival. But let's say it was a credible reason. Does that make it right? What president is not going to think he has a credible reason to investigate his opponent? What president is going to think he doesn't have a credible reason or wouldn't be able to articulate one or come up with some fig leaf? They compounded the dangerous argument that they made that no quid pro quo is too corrupt. If you think it'll help your reelection, they compounded it by saying, and if what you want is targeting your rival, it's even more legitimate. That way, madness lies. That way, madness lies. The normalization of lawlessness. The end justifies the means. Completely amoral and damn dangerous. The White House counsel also doubled, tripled, and even quadrupled down on their theory that even if the president did do all of the things that he is accused of in Article 1 of the impeachment articles, that abuse of power itself is simply not an impeachable offense, even if he did it. Something that I suspect they may someday come to regret, or they'll just say, as uh, they've been forced to do now in regard to their very different claims about what is impeachable during the Clinton impeachment, oh, we were wrong at the time. Now we understand. Now now we're not wrong anymore. We'll just change our mind as convenient, as helpful. You know, it helps when you have no moral compass, I guess. White House counsel also argued that it is not unlawful to get help from a foreign uh, nation because it may not th- be a thing of value information from a foreign nation. Really? Huh? Yeah. That all may come as news to the now former Federal Elections Commission chair, Ann Ravel. She joins us next on the broadcast to ring in on the remarkable new claims by the attorneys for the president of the United States that seem to suggest a president can now do anything he or she wants, no matter what laws are violated, so long as they're just looking out for the best interests of the nation. Ann Ravel is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Congressman Jason Crow, Democrat of Colorado, one of the House impeachment managers on Thursday, described arguments by Trump defense lawyer Alan Dershowitz on Wednesday in the Senate trial of Donald Trump as, quote, dangerous. During the first day of questions and answers in the trial, Dershowitz had argued that presidents could do nearly anything so long as they believe their own reelection is in the national public interest. 
Dershowitz's remarks came in response to a question about unlawful quid pro quos, one of the offenses uh, that Trump is alleged to have committed. We played Dershowitz's full remarks previously, but uh, before I get to my guest, here is a quick refresher of his remarkable claim on Wednesday in the Senate impeachment trial of Donald John Trump, just so you don't think I'm making it up. And if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected, in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. Pure financial reasons. It would be a much harder case if a hypothetical president of the United States said to a hypothetical leader of a foreign country, unless you build a hotel with my name on it, and unless you give me a million dollar kickback, I will withhold the funds. That's an easy case. That's purely corrupt and in the purely private interest. But a complex middle case is, I want to be elected. I think I'm a great president. I think I'm the greatest president there ever was. And if I'm not elected, the national interest will suffer greatly. That cannot be an impeachable offense. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. (laughs) Just uh, amazing. House Manager Crow joined many other Democrats in condemning the claim from an attorney, a criminal defense attorney, I should note, not a constitutional attorney, uh, defending the president in a Senate impeachment trial with such a remarkable claim. Crow said during an appearance on CNN, if you follow all of that logic, it would make the president above the law. That's what they want you to believe, and it is a very dangerous thing. Crow said the argument was part of a pattern of Trump's defense team continuing, quote, to move the goalposts. He noted that Trump had initially argued there was no quid pro quo, quid pro quo at play here when he uh, pressed for uh, Ukraine for investigations that could benefit him politically. Now his own attorneys are acknowledging the quid pro quo, but claiming that it was not a corrupt or unlawful quid pro quo, because even if he did ask for something of value that would help him in his reelection in exchange for hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer money for military assistance to Ukraine, that it was not corrupt or illegal because, well, he honestly felt that it was in the best interest of the nation if he was reelected. Moving the goalposts even further, however, towards making the unlawful somehow lawful on Wednesday, the president's deputy White House counsel, Patrick Philbin, argued, if I am understanding him correctly, that accepting a thing of value from a foreign nation in an election is not actually unlawful. Responding to a question from Senator Chris Coons, Democrat of Delaware, about Trump's apparent public solicitation of Russia and China for compromising materials on his campaign rivals. Philbin argued that Trump's remarks on that did not, in fact, represent a violation of campaign finance laws that make it illegal to accept or solicit a thing of value from foreign sources. Here's the question from Coons, read by Chief Justice John Roberts, and the answer in response from White House Deputy Counsel Patrick Philbin. The president's brief states, quote, Congress has forbidden foreigners' involvement in American elections, end quote. However, in June 2019, President Trump said that if Russia or China offered information on his opponent, quote, there's nothing wrong with listening, end quote, and he might not alert the FBI because, quote, give me a break, life doesn't work that way, 
end quote. Does President Trump agree with your statement that foreigners' involvement in American elections is illegal? The interview with ABC that you cited does not involve uh, something that is a foreign campaign contribution, something that is addressed by the laws passed by Congress. He was referring to the possibility that information could come from a source. And I think he pointed out in that interview that he might contact the FBI, he might uh, listen to something. But mere information is not something that would violate the campaign finance laws. So I, I think that the idea that any information that happens to come from overseas is necessarily campaign interference is, is a mistake. That's, uh, that's a non sequitur. Information that is credible, that potentially shows wrongdoing by someone who happens to be running for office, if it's credible information, is relevant information for the voters to know about, for people to be able to decide on who is the best candidate for an office. So mere information is not something that would violate the campaign finance laws, according to the uh, deputy counsel to the president of the United States. Are you sure about that, Mr. Philbin? Because as deputy legal counsel for the president, it might be nice if you were able to advise a president who has both asked for and received help from foreign nations in his elections. If he knew if that was, in fact, unlawful or not, according to the law. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California, one of the House managers, said apparently it's OK for the president to get information from foreign governments in an election. That's news to me, she said, accusing Philbin of engaging in a wholesale rewrite of federal law to cover for Trump. So here now to offer some information uh, from someone who isn't just making things up as Philbin and Dershowitz seem to be in their defense of the president in order to get him off the hook in an impeachment trial is former Federal Elections Commission chair Ann Ravel, who may know a thing or two about all of this and about what is and isn't illegal in a federal election. Commissioner Ravel, welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you. Good to be with you. All right. Before I get your thoughts on all of this, let me just check your bona fides here, uh, Anne. Uh, how long were you a commissioner on the FEC, the uh, Federal Elections Commission? I was a commissioner from 2013 until 2017. All right. Uh, about four years. And when did you become chair of the FEC? I believe I was chair in 2015. So about two years. Now, the chair is currently, right. uh, I believe, Ellen Weintraub, as, as I recall. No, she, um, because the chair rotates, uh -huh. uh, she is no longer uh, the chair. Gotcha. Okay, so two, about three years ago then, you left, you were the, the chair until 2017. So with all of that clarified, your comments uh, first, I want to get in, in response to the uh, Dershowitz argument that if a president does something that helps their reelection, uh, in this case, soliciting a thing of value from a foreign nation to help their reelection bid and withholding military aid until Ukraine offers dirt on Joe Biden, that is not an unlawful quid pro quo or a violation of the law or an impeachable offense because if the president honestly believed that his reelection was in the national interest, well, he was only looking out for the country, which is his job as president. Your response to that, Ann Ramble? 
Well, there are so many things wrong with that argument. It's hard to know where to start. Um, But let's say this. He he admitted that it was a quid pro quo. Mm -hmm. A quid pro quo is, on its face, inappropriate for the president to engage in and illegal. And so with regard to that, um, his... Uh, sort of way of saying that it's somehow justified because it's important for the for the nation mm-hmm. um, is ridiculous because it would be like saying, and I understand that the president is in a somewhat different role, but it would be like saying for any elected public official that because it's so important for them to be reelected mm-hmm. uh, because they have you know such a great reputation uh, that they can commit any criminal act and that's not what the framers of the constitution intended uh, with regard to the presidency and that is exactly why they have the laws relating to impeachment procedures. So setting aside what the founders, because, you know, throughout these impeachment proceedings, uh, both sides are telling us what the founders really, really, truly wanted. Even setting those aside, we have laws in this land and this notion that you can violate them just because you believe you're looking out for the best interests of the nation uh, I mean, is that anywhere within the realm of anything you have ever dealt with in, in your years? Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm not even sure how to approach this, Anne. It seems right. so insane. Well, it, insane is exactly the word that I would be using, because in, in criminal law, of course, uh, because uh, you are doing something that is in good faith and don't do it knowingly, that's one thing, and that might impact what kind of um, sentence you get. Mm -hmm. But generally, the law does not have an exception for people who think they're so important that their um, worth is necessary Mm. for the whole country, and therefore they can act with illegality and with impunity. Now, one point I want to clarify that you said that uh, quid pro quos uh, were unlawful. And am I correct? Not all quid pro quos in and of themselves are unlawful, right? I can say, hey, if you... uh, you know, help us out on this peace treaty, then uh, we will help your country out with, you know, military or foreign assistance right. or something. That would not be uh, Of course, unlawful, that's right? a negotiation. Okay. That's a negotiation. What the quid pro quo in this case, though, was not for the purpose of the country. He was not negotiating on behalf of the country. He was negotiating on behalf of his own self-interest. And that itself is inappropriate and unlawful, and we can talk about the uh, campaign finance mm-hmm. aspects of that, but you as a president, just in general, and of course we've had long, many long days of mm-hmm. testimony about these things, uh, the president is the highest public servant in the land, and the job of all public servants is to work on behalf of the public. And that's clearly not what occurred in these cases. They were for his own reelection. 
so that's where campaign finance comes in. Well, let's jump to that, because uh, Patrick Philbin's claim that I played there, that receiving information that was offered by China or Russia or any other foreign nation, if it's uh, something of use to the American people that Americans ought to know about, that is is not a barred thing of value. Uh, House Manager Zoe Lofgren, she worked, by the way, on the Nixon impeachment going way back. Uh, she said this was news to her. Let me play Lofgren's response here to Philbin, and then I'll get yours, Anne. And I was stunned to hear that now apparently it's okay for the president to get information from foreign governments in an election. That's news to me. Uh, you know, the, the, the election campaign laws prohibit accepting a thing of value. A thing of value is information. If you or I accept, accepted uh, material information from a, a source, email, uh, databases and the like, without paying for it or from a foreign nation, that would be illegal. The, the thought that this, as we go forward in this trial itself, we are creating additional dangers to the nation by suggesting that things that have long been prohibited are now suddenly going to be okay because they've been asserted in the president's defense. And Ravel, your response as the former commissioner of the Federal Elections Commission to all of this. Right. Well, we first and foremost know that the law is very clear that a prohibited contribution that is one that comes from foreign nationals of any sort, mm -hmm. including foreign corporations and, and foreign governments. So that is the basic principle. And then with regard to what is a contribution, Zoe Lofgren is absolutely right. Uh, the courts have interpreted it um, to mean anything, anything of value. Uh, and it's a broad, expansive meaning. And it can be something that is both tangible and intangible. So it could be even, court cases have said, that it could be even perceived benefits. Mm. And they have said specifically promises or information, note information, yes. testimony, even conjugal visits, uh -huh. <laughs> and commercially worthless stock. Uh -huh. Those are considered to be things of value that would be considered to be campaign contributions. And, um, and the, I'm sorry, and let me just say yeah. the commission itself has also uh, enumerated a number of things, such as opposition research, contact lists, email lists, staff time, logos, poll results. So for this lawyer, uh, alleged lawyer, to argue <laughs> that... Uh, the law does not consider this to be a thing of value is is so contrary to the what the federal courts and even the fed and even the supreme court has accepted yeah he seemed to dismiss it as you know dismiss it as well a piece of information that's not a thing of value 
I guess it's too bad it wasn't a conjugal visit. In that case, we would have all of the Republicans up in arms and ready to throw out this president. I, I, Perhaps. I, I, I should note uh, that it's awful unlawful to, or, or confirm this for me, to even solicit a thing of value. So the crime actually takes place when uh, a candidate or a president of the United States even asks, hey, Russia, if you're listening, I'd like to have this, or China, please look into that, or president of Ukraine, you need to do us a favor. That is solicitation of a thing of value, is it not? That, yes, it is, and yes, it is illegal to do that. What, what is your concern about the messages that are apparently now being sent pretty loudly and clearly by the legal team of the President of the United States here? Uh, wh- what is the danger here, if any, as you see it, as uh, uh, House Manager Crow said that this was dangerous? Well, it's dangerous because we already have concerns about foreign intervention in our elections, major concerns, and we know that the director of the FBI has actually said that 2016 was just a uh, dry run for 2020. Mm -hmm. And so we know we're at risk. We know that when people understand that there cannot be consequences because there is no FEC in existence now, Mm. there's only three members, so there will be no enforcement of the law. This is like um, sending a flare-up, indicating it's open season for illegality in our electoral process. And I wanted to ask you about that, too, because the FEC uh, is seemingly crippled at at this point, even when it's fully staffed uh, with a constant you know, three to three votes that prevent the FEC from taking civil action against campaign finance laws. Action could still be taken in uh, against criminal violations of campaign finance laws, but the DOJ would take those actions, as I understand it. It is now led by someone who I believe to be wholly corrupt. That would be Trump's Attorney General Bill Barr, and that he would be unlikely to bring you know, criminal campaign finance violations, at least against Republicans. Uh, With that, it seems to me, Anne, that there will now pretty much be 100 percent impunity for the violation of any and all campaign finance laws, the 2020 campaign and beyond, as I'm looking at this. Yes. And and I think you're absolutely right, uh, as evidenced by this entire fiasco, the attorney general is not acting as an attorney general who would act with integrity and try to enforce the laws fairly and evenly of the United States. Instead, he seems to be biased in favor of uh, assuring that he uh, supports this president so he remains in office, I presume. Uh, But as a result, we do not have any enforcement whatsoever Mm. of campaign finance laws. And people don't realize how significant that is. It's very significant. I mean, we remember, I know you and I have talked about this, Mm -hmm. uh, the reason that there is enforcement was because of Watergate, Mm -hmm. when there was all kinds of money that came to the White House in bags, in cash, from foreign donors, Um, And, of course, we know there was all kinds of illegal activity taking place as well that was campaign finance activity. Mm -hmm. And that 
caused a lot of uh, dismay in the country, enough to have an impeachment and have the president step down. And this is the equivalent of that. Do do you rank this, what, what uh, Donald Trump is being accused of here, as something that is akin to what Nixon did, uh, the same or, or worse? I think it's, uh, it, it's the equivalent. It is absolutely the equivalent of it. Nan, just to be clear, uh, if these arguments are successful from the president's team, these what I think you and I both regard as kind of insane arguments about what the law is and isn't, even if they're successful in giving Republican senators the excuse they need to acquit this president, it does not actually change the law as written, correct? That's correct. It does not. The law still remains intact, and the, and the Supreme Court decisions that have uh, mm-hmm. upheld that law and upheld the expansiveness of that law. It's an interesting conundrum for Roberts, I have to say. Yeah, sitting overseeing all of this uh, as the Chief Justice. Right. Yes. Uh, I've uh, got just a, a, a few minutes here, and uh, you happen to be running for office this year yourself as a Democratic candidate for uh, California State Senate in State Senate District 15, which is the uh, San Jose area. Now, that is a state office. It doesn't fall, uh, as I understand it, under federal campaign finance laws, correct? That's correct. There are state laws. Right. You so you do have to comply with state laws. Uh, is there anything that forbids uh, something something like that, like a, a thing of value from a foreign nation in in California state law? You know, I know that state law has been bolstered to forbid money or, or other contributions from uh, foreign nations, and I would guess that they would utilize what has been upheld by the Supreme Court uh, as a thing, what is a thing of value and what is a contribution. And I know you will be on the ballot on the uh, uh, March 3rd Super Tuesday primary coming up, uh, running against a couple of other Democrats, a couple of Republicans, a couple of independents, I think, in uh, what is now California's jungle-style primary where the top two winners of the state primary from any party will face off again in November uh, on the on the general ballot uh, in the general election. I'm correct about that, uh, right? Yes, you are. All right. Yes. Well, after, after spending years as a commissioner and chair of the uh, Federal Elections Commission, what, what have you learned from the other side now as a candidate who I know has to, you know, dial for dollars and do all of the other right. things that the FEC is supposed to be anyway— overseeing uh, in in federal campaigns. What have you learned? Are the constraints of state election laws and the uh, FEC and so forth too tough now that you're on the other side of the coin? Oh, I don't think that the constraints are too tough at all. In fact, I think that there need to be more constraints. And frankly, I also think that the only solution to some of the issues that we're facing although, of course, it won't deal with all the independent expenditures Mm -hmm. that the court has said is appropriate, but I really now believe firmly that um, public financing would Mm. be the the best way for people to be running for office because this is a situation where money rules and people who perhaps don't have the contacts or the connections or the money themselves, Mm -hmm. it's 
very difficult to get diverse mm. candidates. Mm. Would conjugal visits help in any way? <laughs> in that, is that does that come up in the? I don't know. I don't know. Don't. I, I thought you'd like that yeah. uh, that decision by the court about conjugal, conjugal yeah. business. I don't know if they come yeah. into play here, but uh, pay no uh, mind to me. I, I'll, I'll get you no, in no, enough no. trouble as is. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, thank you. It's uh, <laughs> this is it's hard to believe that this is actually going on in our national government. It really is. Uh, Anne Ravel, former Federal Elections uh, Commission chair, former chair, by the way, of the California Fair Political Practices Commission, which is much tougher than the FEC, now Democratic candidate for California State Senate in uh, State Senate District 15. You can find more information on her at Ravel, R-A-V-E-L for C-A, Ravel4CA.com, and on the Twitters at Ann M. Ravel. Good luck on March 3rd. Thanks for offering us some insight Thank on you. this uh, madness in the U.S. Senate today, Anne, and uh, I bet we'll be calling you again soon. All right. Thank you so much. You bet. Take care. Okay, one very quick, one more clip here very quickly before we get to Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. We talked a little bit yesterday about how the Republicans are saying, well, you didn't subpoena these people properly. You should have gone to court before you brought the case here. And then over in court, the DOJ is saying, no, you can't subpoena anyone in the executive branch. Adam Schiff brought that case, that brought that matter up again with an argument that is being made today by the Department of Justice on behalf of the White House in the courts. You can't make this stuff up. Today, while we've been debating whether a president can be impeached for uh, essentially bogus claims of privilege for attempting to use the courts to cover up misconduct, the Justice Department, in resisting House subpoenas, is in court today and was asked, well, if the Congress can't come to the court to enforce its subpoenas, because as we know, they're in here arguing Congress must go to court to enforce its subpoenas, but they're in the court saying, Congress, thou shalt not do that. So the judge says, if the Congress can't enforce its subpoenas in court, then what remedy is there? And the Justice Department lawyer's response is, impeachment. Impeachment. <laughs> you can't make this up. I mean, what, what more evidence do we need of the bad faith of this effort to cover up? Not much. This way madness lies indeed. Quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. You know, the uh, U.S. House of Representatives today voted to... Uh, 
unauthorized, I guess, the uh, authorization for the use of military force to overturn that. The one from 2002 that allowed us to invade Iraq. Yep. That's the one that Donald Trump actually used as uh, part of his justification for assassinating uh, General Qasem Soleimani of Iran recently. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, her office offered to make the congresswoman available, didn't even have time for that, for something as huge and historic as that. Now, the 2002 AUMF may have more trouble being overturned in the U.S. Senate. We'll find out. But a notable moment in the U.S. House that we don't even have time to cover. (laughs) That said, we do have time to cover our latest Green News report. It is everybody's responsibility, wherever he or she is, uh, to see what he or she can actually do to fight climate change and protect biodiversity. Climate change could blow up the economy, but the world's banks aren't ready. New report finds... The Federal Reserve has not taken this seriously. And the U.S. banking system isn't ready either. Plus... I'm looking forward to uh, putting America uh, on a sustainable path to a better transportation future. House Democrats roll out massive climate change legislation. All of that and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Failing to try is already failing. Yes, but that means we have succeeded to fail. See? Look on the bright side, Christine Lagarde, European Central Bank President. We're succeeding at something. This is your... Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, you don't just succeed at failing, you also succeed at succeeding every single day here on the Green News Report. Well, thanks so much, I think. But, you know, (laughs) let's get to the news. First, a surprising consequence, or surprising to me at least, of China's efforts to control the spread of the new coronavirus. China is the world's biggest oil importer, but the government's decision to restrict domestic travel in some areas on top of a reduction in international travel to China has actually dampened global demand for oil which energy experts say could extend for months. So it's the environmentalists who are behind this coronavirus. No, but there is a silver lining to the fact that it's making climate change not quite as bad. Okay, well, see, there you go. Always looking for the bright side. Meanwhile, a new report warns that climate change is likely to be one of the biggest economic dislocations of all time, but the world's financial system isn't ready. Well, that's not the bright side. A new analysis from the Umbrella Organization for the World's central banks, the Bank for International Settlements, warns in a new report that the world's bankers are not yet incorporating the financial risks of economic disruption from climate shocks in their planning and investing. But in a press conference, European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde said her institution is now working to embed climate risks in all of their work. She said they're seeking ways to mobilize investment strategies to help markets transition away from fossil fuels. And she dismissed the debate over whether fighting climate change should even be part of the central bank's role. I'm also aware of the danger of doing nothing. And I think that, you know, failing to try is already failing. So we should at least try to explore every area where we can actually participate. 
That same warning was echoed here in the United States in a report late last year by the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank. On a recent broadcast, financial journalist David Dayan of the American Prospect warned that U.S. banks and Wall Street are still investing billions of dollars in fossil fuel projects that are very likely to become stranded assets, worthless and unusable if, for example, a national or global carbon tax is implemented. Dayan calls it a ticking time bomb, but one that can be managed. If you work now to auction off these assets to move and transition the economy and and sort of get this priced in to the financial system, there is a way to do this gradually such that uh, it does not cause like an immediate near-term shock where there are fire sales and, 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 and people going crazy. Yeah, but then we'd all have to be adults, do things properly, that's not going to happen, is it? Well, he does say that it all depends on who sits in the White House and who they nominate to be banking regulators. So the guy sitting in the White House right now, not so much? Not so much. To that end, however, House Democratic leadership this week rolled out a $760 billion plan to rebuild the nation's crucial infrastructure systems along the lines of the proposed Green New Deal framework. The draft plan aims to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 by focusing on clean energy deployment and system resilience against accelerating climate impacts. Its broad goals include upgrading the nation's water and wastewater systems, investing in low emissions rail and transit options, and scaling up renewable fuels for aviation. But Politico reports that the Democrats' focus on climate could be an obstacle to Republicans participating. Of course, because it does something good. They better block that. Finally, some good news. The Florida Department of Environmental Protection has announced it will purchase 20,000 acres of wetlands in the fragile Everglades in an effort to save the area from oil drilling. Florida? Florida. And New Jersey has become the first state in the nation to require builders to take account of the impacts of climate change, including rising sea levels, in their developments in order to win government approval for their projects. Here's something you don't hear very often. Way to go, New Jersey. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. By the way, at bradblog.com, we are celebrating our 16th anniversary. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help leave us a little birthday present. We could use it. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. I've been a lot of places, seen pictures of the rest. But of all the places I can think of, I like Jersey best. (laughs) Thank you very much to our producer, Desi Doyen. To my guest today, former FEC Chair Ann Ravel. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. See you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I've been a lot of places, seen pictures of the rest. But of all the blizzards I can think of, I like Jersey best. You remember the Paul Simon version, don't you? Whoa, we have horses, Princeton horses. Gas stations, we have scores. Trenton Hopewell.